All right, let's pray. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful story of Esther. Uh, it's a, in some ways, it's a, a mysterious book, Lord, one that doesn't include your name or instructions, but Lord, is a narrative of how you preserved um, the nation of Israel. And so, Father, as we continue our journey through this story, Lord, in this sixth chapter, I pray that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text. Father, I pray that your spirit would soften our hearts. Lord, that we would glean principles, Lord, of application for our own lives. And that ultimately, Lord, we'd move closer to you in our relationship. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would speak to us through your word. We thank you that it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We pray that you would give us hope through your word today. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Esther chapter 6, verse 1. During that night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring back, bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh two of the king's eunuchs, who were doorkeepers, that they sought to lay hands on King Ashwaris. The king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor Let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him. Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, mourning and with his head covered. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish origin, You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. 
While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you'd help us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're entering our story sort of the plot continues to thicken. I'd said a few weeks ago that the story is driving me crazy. I, um, if, if we take the text and allow ourselves not to know the end of the story and we just stay in the present, what we're looking at, I'm like dying here. It was a few chapters ago after Esther had been sort of challenged that she, um, she went to the king risking her whole life and the king right away says, uh, up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. What do you want me? To, what do you want from me? I'm like Esther. That's your chance. Take it. Go for it. She says, well, I want to have you and I want to have Haman come over for a banquet I've prepared. So they go to the banquet, and then at the banquet, King says, So I've, you've brought me here. We've had our dinner. We're at the end of the meal. What is it that you want from me? All right, Esther, go for it. And what does she do? What I want is to have you guys over for dinner again tomorrow night. It's like, oh, you're killing me. And the story's sort of unfolding. The bigger picture of Esther is in this book, God is not mentioned at all. There's no reference to him. There's no reference to prayer. There's, no, there's really not a whole lot of, there's nothing. It's a great story. And, and the question that I, I keep asking myself is, what is the purpose of this book? And sort of the governing verse that I've sort of uh, laid upon this whole book is Romans chapter 15, verse 4. If you, you, know, you don't have to turn there with me, but if you'd like to, you can. Um, in Romans 14, 4, the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church in Rome, he writes concerning the Old Testament. Paul is probably one of, I don't think one of, I think he's probably the greatest Old Testament scholar that ever lived. And so in Romans 15, 4, as he writes concerning the scriptures, the Old Testament as we know them today, he says this, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so when I read that verse in in light of Esther, I keep asking myself, how does Esther give us hope? What's the, how does Esther fit into the story of redemption that's told from Genesis through Revelation. And throughout the years, the centuries, nations and leaders have have risen that have tried to annihilate the Jewish people. And during this setting, it's the, the Persian Empire. The reason I believe that so many nations over history have risen up against the Jewish people, the reason the whole Middle East hates Israel today is because they're God's chosen people. God has made great promises that would come through them. And so if the Jewish people could be wiped off the face of the earth, then God's promise would sort of be done away with. And so here we find a people, they've been taken into captivity, they've been let go out of captivity, they're now free. The the Persian Empire has has risen. A few weeks ago in our study, we, we see that Haman has come to power. Haman hates the Jewish people. He's, he's held his um, composure 
so that he didn't just attack the one Jewish guy that he couldn't stand, who was Mordecai, who refused to bow when he came across him at the city gate. He came up with this plan. He, he sort of, I don't want to say he tricked the king, but he, he led the king to sign an edict that at the end of the year, all of the Jews would basically be open season, for lack of better terms, that there was freedom to kill, to plunder, to, to annihilate all of the Jewish people. And so our story slowly been sort of unfolding. And in chapter, verse 1 of chapter 6, we see during the night, the king could not sleep. And so it says during that night, what, what was going on that night? If we back up to verse 9 of chapter 5, the, part, the first banquet had ended. Haman left the banquet. He went home. He called his wife to him. He called all of his friends to him. And, and he was the guy that, I used the word hate the first time, but I've, like, my wife has you know, stricken the word hate from our vocabulary unless it's like really justifiable, which is very, like I can say I hate sin. I know that I, I can say I hate sin. Then I'm backed into the problem, like, do I really mean that? Like, in my flesh, you know? Like, I struggle, if I hated it so much, then why do I struggle with it so much? You know? Like, but we're getting into my psyche too far here. But I really, Haman bugs me. He's like fingernails on a chalkboard. He calls his friends, and he basically summons them to say what a great guy he is. In verse 11 of chapter 5, he recounted to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and his wife is one of them. Like, I think she knows all about those boys. I think she gave birth to all of them. I, I think, I forget what the number was, but I think we, I think I determined there was nine sons, maybe history says. Like, she knows about those boys. Why are you glorying to them about to her? Uh, he magnified, how, he, how the king had magnified him, how he promoted him above all other princes, servants of the king. Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she has prepared. And tomorrow I am invited to her, invited by her with the king. I'm the greatest guy in the world. I have all this money. Life's going so great. Will you guys just revel in it with me? I don't know. Can I use the word hate? I don't know. She's shaking her head. I strongly dislike this in people, when they just flaunt what they have and all they care about is themselves. But in the midst of this, there was one thing that just, is it to be called stuck in your craw? Is that the saying? You know, that means like a little bone stuck in your throat, that you, ah, like a furball or something. That you, like there's just something that he can't go down. This guy Mordecai won't bow to him. He's furious. And in verse 13, he says, Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew. Just catch that. I want to make a point about this because it's going to come up in the end of this passage. He says to them, Mordecai the Jew, these advisors of his understand clearly who Mordecai... Everybody knows that Mordecai is a Jew, that he's of Jewish origin, that Haman had come up with this plan to have all of the Jews annihilated. there's There's no question... They know he's Jewish. Just kind of file that away in the back of your brain. I'm going to bring it back up later. And they say, hey, we got a plan. 
get a, make a gallows, 50 cubits high, which I think is 75 feet. It's huge. It was way higher than, uh, than the standard. And they say, tomorrow you go to the king and basically have Mordecai executed on this gallows. And there's a lot of questions like, were they going to like crucify him on it? Were they going to impale him on it? There were a lot of different options we don't really know. And he says, that's great advice, guys. Let's do that. Let's start building the gallows. He had all sorts of money. He had all sorts of resources. And so through this night, this gallow was being made. And it was that night that the king could not sleep. The timing of this is, I mean, we would say in our culture, what a coincidence. And I don't, can Christians say coincidence? I, I, we, we typically wouldn't say coincidence. But I do think coincidence is sort of the non-theistic um, viewpoint of trying to explain God's providence or sovereignty. Like the, like the aligning of things is just, God's not mentioned in this book. But to, to miss, like, how did it just happen that the king couldn't sleep tonight? If it happened the next night, it would have been too late. But, but on this night, he couldn't sleep. And so he gave an order to bring the book of the records, the chronicles, and they were to read them before the king. So the, ki- the king is the man. He is the king of the world. He has his guys and he says, he, come, come to me, come into my room, I can't sleep. He could have done anything. He could have, I mean, King Saul said, hey, go get a musician and start playing music to me. He could have had a comedy show. He could have done whatever. And he says, I want you to go get the chronicles and bring them in here and start reading them to me. The, the Persians were meticulous in their record keeping. So, so think of like a, a library Go into the library and grab me one of the books, one of the, the minutes of our, our nation's sort of things that had happened. So they go there, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's okay. They grab, they just happen to grab the one that has this event that Mordecai had done something four years earlier from, uh, from the events that are taking place here. Now, now some, there's a lot of question mark. What was the king trying to do? Uh, if you have a sleepless night and you, you're struggling with insomnia, which I, it happens to me often. I have the gift of worry. And so I'm really trying to get rid of it. But I mean, I, I, I'd say one out of 10 nights, I'll go to sleep. And then 30 minutes to an hour later, I'll kind of like startle myself awake. And I'll just be worried. And it's like, oh, man. So you make a list. So I make a list. You guys don't. I don't I'm a list maker. And so I'll try to, like, write it down to basically, like, my list can be totally blank. It's like, I got nothing to worry about. Like, I can go back to sleep, and then I'll, I'll work through it. So, so when you can't sleep, there's sort of two options. You can try to lull yourself to sleep, or you can say, you know what? I got a lot of stuff to do. I'm just going to go ahead and stay up and work, and I'm going to get as much done as I can right now, and then I'll go to sleep. Nobody really knows what the king is doing here? Is he trying to? Is he just saying I'm I'm done fighting, trying to sleep, or is he trying to sleep? My initial thought is that he's trying to sleep. It's like, come bring the chronicles and start reading to me. If I want to take a nap and I'm kind of struggling, what I'll do is I'll say, Hey Anna, can you come into the room, and can you call your mom, 
And she'll go, what? I'm like, I just want to go to sleep, but I don't want to talk. And so, like, if she's talking to me, she's going to expect a response. But I'm going to fall asleep. And so it's perfect. I'm like, just call your mom and just talk to your mom in the room, and then I'll fall asleep. So I can hear the chitter chattering. It's, it's kind of like turning on the TV. And every now and again, she'll, I'll, like, hear from her mom say, is that Gunner snoring? And she says, yes. I'm like, why don't you blame it on the dog? Like, come on, blame it on something. Like, she's like, you call me here to have a talk with my mom so you can fall asleep. And if you snore, I'm going to sell you out. Like, I'm like, that's fine. Just as long as you don't wake me up, like, I'll be good, you know. So I see this initially. Like, like he's saying, come grab one of those books, the, the manual for your car, and just start reading. And maybe I'll fall asleep. And so in verse 2, it says, It was found that when Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ashwaris. And the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Now, I want to pause. If, if you'd like, you can turn back. You don't have to. But in, in Esther chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, it's a short little paragraph. And in this short little paragraph, we see that Mordecai, who's Queen Esther's cousin, is at the gate. Uh, uh, Big Thana and, and Teresh are two guys, are basically the, the bodyguards of the king. They're at the city gate. They begin talking amongst themselves. Maybe they're trying to, I don't know the details. But it became known to Mordecai that these two trusted security guards, these, these bodyguards of the most like elite scale the most intimacy with the king that they were the last line of defense they start plotting the king's assassination and so mordecai hears about this and mordecai brings it to queen esther's attention she says listen he says listen these two guys these trusted advisors they're about to kill the king you need to go let him know so esther goes and says hey my cousin mordecai is down at the gate he hears about this assassination plot we're told that we're told that they basically, they had a trial of some sort. They researched, they found out all the facts. And at the end of the day, these two guys were found guilty and they were executed. And as we start into chapter three back then, naturally you would think that there would be a reward. There'd be some sort of like bonus given. If you were a king back then, when people protected your life, if people did what you want, you would publicly honor them. This is hedging your, your security force. Somebody protects you, you reward them very openly so that it encourages other people to, to, to protect you. And it's just kind of, somebody does something, you want to honor them. Well, but then we go into verse one and we see immediately that it's not Mordecai that's advanced. It's this guy, Haman, just comes out of like nowhere and we see that not only is he advanced, he's like placed in like number two position. Nothing's happened. I wish we could talk to Mordecai. I, I, I mean, you're going to hear this a lot today. I wish there was more to the story. I love this chapter, chapter six, because uh, anytime I, in my study, when I open up like scholarly guys, most of the time scholarly guys, like it's hard to stay awake, but it's like I got to like push through. I got to push through to read. But when I open up one of these like, like lofty thinkers and they start describing chapter six as almost like slapstick humor, I'm like, this is my chapter. I love slapstick comedy. The, the irony, like 
this is like the perfect storm of everything's coming together that this is hilarious. This is just truly a funny story. And so how did Mordecai respond? He saved the king's life and he's just passed over. And not only is he passed over, he's passed over by this guy Haman who his people hate the Jewish people. There's bad blood that goes way, way, way back. And so the king in his sleepless night, he says, hey, wait, whoa, whoa. What happened? Yeah, these, those two guys, remember we executed them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember they betrayed me. I, like I was, I couldn't believe it. And I knew we executed them, but we learned about this from this guy, Mordecai? How that, what do we do? Did we honor him? Did we do anything? Like, did, what, like, this is a big deal. And we see the king's servants who attended to him said, nothing has been done for him. Nothing. And so these first few verses, we kind of get this sort of, this, this tension. I think Ben used a big word today, and I think he's got it stuck in my head juxtaposition. So I'm going to pretend like I know what that word means. <laughs> like you have two contrasting things. Am I close? All oh, right. I see. There's this like mounting juxtaposition. If we go to the last few verses of chapter five, we see that the whole big, everything is being set up for Mordecai to be executed. Like he's already condemned his whole people by his actions of not bowing like 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 they're condemned uh, mordecai now has like gone so far that he's haman so furious that he's going to be hung on the 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 biggest gallow that's ever been made and, and then the next with the with the next sentence you remember because chapter and verses aren't put there by god those man put those there 1500 years ago they're great i love them but it's easy sometimes to think that there's like natural, like segregations that exist. This is the very next sentence. What happens is the king can't sleep. Suddenly he finds out that Mordecai saved his life and nothing's been done for him. This is hilarious. This week I was with a guy and um, he was, he, he's a young Christian and he asked the question, I wasn't even talking about this. And he, and he says, you know, I've, I'm just like really, I, I know that the Bible says that we're supposed to, um, to, to really not live for man, but to live for God. And we want to honor God with our lives. And, and I think he was referencing John 6. I didn't look at what he was referencing, but there was something in John 6 that he, he was kind of struggling with that where Jesus said like, hey, you don't live to please man, but, but you live to please God. And he said, well, how does that work in our workplace environment? Because I've been working hard, and, and really I feel that I should have been advanced by now, and I'm not, I'm not advancing. And I see guys who I, who I know have done far less than I've done. And he's speaking from a, a posture of humility, not arrogance. And he's like, so I see these guys advancing, and I know I want to live to please God, but at the same time, I want to advance and I want to like please the people. Around. How, how does this all fit together? I'm like, this is, this is what Mordecai went through. He's like, who? <laughs> Mordecai got passed over four years before. 
for a significant event. And I wonder what he thought at that time. But as I see this, like the, the sovereignty of God's hand, the providence of God, watching how God sort of like unfolds the story, if he'd been recognized four years before, I don't think that today's story would have any significance, that the whole story of the Jewish people, that, the, that, that, that God waits four years. And suddenly the, the king just happens to not be able to sleep. The king asks for the, the chronicles to be brought to him. They just happen to grab the chronicles from four years ago, that all of this just sort of happens. And so as I'm reading this passage, I, I, I'm really a bad student because if, like, it, I do this a lot. <laughs> Why does this matter? How does this apply to me? And so Esther's like a, ter- it's a difficult book because it's not like, I feel like I have more of the German mind than like the, the artist mind. Like I'm not very philosophical. Just give me the facts. Just tell me, just give me a list. Like I'll do everything. But this book is like forcing me to think and to reflect and what's God doing here? And so, so the first thing here is I see this king who doesn't sleep. And it's fascinating. If you go through the Bible and you look at stories of, of people who can't sleep, it intrigues me that God like, often uses those sleepless nights as powerful times to speak to a person. And so I've learned in my like, gift of worry and not like when I have those nights, I don't just sort of start counting sheep. Does that even work? I don't want to ask anybody to raise hand, but do we? Like, that's something we just made up to tell kids: count sleep to keep them busy so they don't bug us when they're supposed to be. Like, I don't, there's probably something way deeper. So I'm sorry if I offended anybody with counting sheep, but for me, like it just. So, like when I'm having those nights, as I've matured in the Lord, like I I feel now that when I can't sleep, I I try to use that time to pray. Like, Lord, are you trying to tell me something? Are you trying to? Like, I don't know. Or maybe it's just me. So, so they have like the Lord's Prayer, you know, um, something that we can sort of meditate upon God like during that time to see if he, he guides or shows you something. That's a lesson here because during this guy's sleepless night, and, I, and I'm not saying that he's like, like a God-loving guy or anything like that, but to see how God moved through this night that if we can't sleep, I, I think there's a lesson to sort of pay attention. And then I look at Mordecai. And, and and I don't know in this story the thing that, you know, the prosperity gospel people, that if you give your life to Christ, if you become a Christian, then you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and everything's going to go your way, and nothing bad will happen to you. Man, how does that apply to the Jewish people? How does that apply to the early church? How does that apply to Jesus? Like, at this point in my life, I'm older than Jesus by a long shot. Like, so I've already been given more than he got. Like, I look at all of the, the, the early church. They were all executed. And, and so then as I come to Christ, I think, well, and my life was a mess when I came to Christ. Like, I was a, like, I, I'm not, 
I was a mess. And so I come to Christ, and then I start living my life right. I, I meet my wife. We do everything right. She's like a saint compared to me. Uh, she's a saint. In, we are all saints in Christ. But we're very polarized in where we came from. And so we did everything like we were supposed to. And then we lose our first child through miscarriage. And I remember during that time, just like, what's up? I'm playing by your rules. I'm trying, doing your checklist. Everything's supposed to start going well. You come to Christ, everything's supposed to get better. Well, what if your whole family turns on you because they're not Christian? What if you start losing friends because the way you now want to order your life is, is in contrast to theirs? And I look at this story of of Mordecai. Things had gone really bad. He gets passed over and years has flown by. But suddenly now God uses that in his perfect timing. And so as I grow in my relationship with Christ, I've come to, to, to see that for those of, like, you know, coincidence, God's sovereignty, like, as I've walked with God longer and longer and I see things that happen to me, it's, I don't advise you to start when somebody's lost a loved one or something to start go teaching them about the sovereignty of God. Like that's not, this is something that you learn for, like, for yourself or you teach not in the, moment of the cri- in the moment of crisis. Just give a hug. Say you love them and you're there for them. But, but then when we start to understand how awesome God is and his his big plan is so much greater than me that, that when things start going wrong in my life, like you find out about cancer or you lose someone or your transmission goes out or you get a flat tire or fill in the blanks, this world is filled with all sorts of stuff that doesn't go our way. But for those of us who know Christ, it's there's something that we're able to do as we mature where in the midst of things going wrong, that we can see God's providence. Like, I don't know what God's doing, but I can trust that this isn't greater than him and that he can use this somehow. I can't see it right now. It may be many years down the road, or it might be after I die and I'm in heaven and I kind of can see the tapestry that he's painting. And, and I see this in Mordecai. And so the king says, what have we done? They said, nothing's been done. Verse 6, so the king said, who's in the court? Now, now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows, which he had prepared for him. It's like, I just want to point my finger at him and go, <laughs> you don't even know what you're getting yourself into, buddy because I strongly dislike this character in the Bible. And it's like, oh yeah, the Rocky music's playing. Like you can tell like things are start, they're going to go well for Mordecai. Like just when he thought he was out for the count, everything's changing. Here comes in the evil character. He's showing up. He wants to talk about, like he's going to be called into the king's court. They both want to talk about Mordecai, but the king wants to, to honor him or bless him. And Haman wants him killed. 
And as it unfolds, just notice as we go through this, wait to see where the king brings up Mordecai's name. It comes up at the very, well into the conversation, very, very deep at the last moment. If, he, if, if this whole thing went down with Haman comes into the court of the king's presence and the king says, hey, you know what? I just found out about Mordecai that he saved my life four years ago. What should we do? Haman would have, I'm sure his answer would have been very different. But the prideful man that he is and the way that the question's posed to him, well, we'll get there. We'll look at it. How does it happen? So Haman's out in the court. He wants to hang Mordecai. He's under the same sort of obligation that Queen Esther was in. He's no different. If he makes his approach to the king without being requested, it's off with his head. So I think, I don't know if you heard about the early bird gets the worm. So he's like, well, maybe there's a crowd. I want to get down there. I want to be up nice and early. I got to figure out how I'm going to go talk to the king. He's out there. Next thing he knows, somebody comes out, Haman, the king wants to talk to you. If you're Haman, you're going, yes. I, I don't know. The king wants to talk to me. I have his ear. I can do whatever I, this is, God is on my side. So he comes in. Uh, Verse 5, the king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What is to be done for a man whom the king desires to honor? And I love him. See, this this next little sentence here, God is not mentioned anywhere in Esther. For the most part, Esther is simply this this book that's telling history sort of, I don't want to say from a human perspective, but from like a, like, a, like kind of like a human perspective. There's no like divine insight. It's just like as we see things, it sort of tells things, if that makes sense. I believe that God is the author behind this book. Whoever the human author was, that God spoke through that person. And in verse... Six, at the very end here, I see God's, uh, that big word I learned in seminary, where he, cemetery, seminary, where he, you're teaching in all the class. God is omni, omniscient. There it is. He knows all things. There is no thought that we can keep from God. No human. I can't, I read newspapers. I don't read minds. But look at what it says here. It says, and Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? So he walks in. The king says, hey, what do we do for, what's the policy? What's the protocol? Like, what am I supposed to do to honor somebody that did something? And just Haman, he's thinking to himself, who else is there besides me? He wants to honor me. This is outstanding. Hmm. Well, I don't need money. This is my ad-libbing story here. This is, he doesn't need money. Earlier when he wanted to get the Jews destroyed, he offered, he said, I will fund the whole operation. I will pay for the annihilation of the Jews. And the king says, no, 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 take the company credit card. You, I'll pay for it. He already said, he's glorying in his riches, his sons. He's like, well, what do I need? I don't need any wealth. I don't need... Uh, any more real estate? The best thing that I could have happened is, is well, let's see what he says here. What he's going to want is to be treated like royalty, to be mistaken almost for the king, to get sort of um, 
more uh, power of influence and notoriety in the kingdom. He doesn't need money. He doesn't need, He wants to basically go for a horse ride. I mean, that's, that's basically what it comes down to. Then Haman said, verse 7, to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. So he says, go get a royal robe that's, like, that's kingly robes that only the king would wear. Let him get a horse that only the king would be allowed to ride on and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. There's some... I don't think I need to go into the tension of like the struggle from the commentaries of history. There's a little bit of a struggle because they say the Hebrew makes it sound like that the horse would wear the crown. And they say, well, how could a horse wear a crown? But then as you look at history, that they, horses had crowns that they would put on their forehead, like a bridle that would be on the forehead. And, and I think that what it was in my study is that this would be sort of like it would identify the horse as a presidential horse. It would be if the president's in a limousine or if you're in the military and an admiral comes by in his limousine, they'll have flags on the front that identify that person as who it is. And so he wants this robe that looks like that is the king's robe, a horse that is the king's robe. And the, 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 the horse is not a robe. The horse is a horse, of course. Of course, of course. All right, thank you for bearing with me. Slapstick comedy, I love it. I mean, it, so he wants the horse with the crown that identifies it as a king's horse, as a king's horse, Verse 9, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes. And let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him. Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. It makes me wonder how, you know, when somebody asks you advice and you think it's leaning towards you, it's like, how far do you go? You know, like, do you, 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 you want it to happen. So you know that some, if I go this far, they might say no. If I go here and they say yes, I probably should have. Like, if you're trying to sell something and you put it out there on Craigslist and you get, like, an offer right, like, oh, I should have put it here. I could have gotten more. And so I think he put out, and, like, there would be a lot of prestige for this person to be honored. I think that this is a doable request. And so the king says to um, the king said to Haman, verse ten, take quickly the robes and the horse as you've said. Can you imagine? Like his face has got to be just a smirk. You can't wipe off of it at this point. I mean, he'd probably do a jumping jack if it went not a jumping a cartwheel. I was thinking. Like he would be doing that or like the little clicker thing with the feet when you do that. But he's got to maintain his composure for the king. But he's got to be just, he bit, he bit. Like I went to dinner with the queen and king last night. I'm going to dinner with the queen and king tonight. I have everything. And now leading up to the dinner, I'm going to be paraded around to, for everybody to see my glory and my majesty that the only one greater than me is the king. And if there were sound effects in the Bible, what we'd hear at this point is a record player going. (laughs) The horse, as you've said, 
and do so for Mordecai the Jew. Can you, did he throw up? Did he like, oh, like just, did he like just the paleness in his face? Like, I can just see his whole stomach in knots. Looking at the king, hey, too, Brute, how, how could you do this to me? Like, how could Mordecai, like, oh, man, I wish we had video of his face. And do so for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the gate, at the king's gate, and do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. Now, like, pronto, highest prince, that's you, Mordecai, that's a guy. Dude, that's a great idea. There's a couple of things, like one of the so what questions. As I look at the king here, the king is just a horrible leader. I am. The one thing that stands out to me is this guy isn't a leader. He's more of a puppet. Every decision that he needs to make, he he calls in counselors and he asks them what to do, and then he basically does what they're what they advise him to do. And there's this fine, like in leadership, whatever you're leading your family, your kids, your work, wherever you find, we all have leadership roles. And, And I think that the balance, this tension within leadership is the Bible makes it clear that having counselors, having wisdom is a good thing. We should have counselors. But then as a leader, as people give you influence or they give their opinion, then you need to sort of sort through and then you need to make your decision. And sometimes your decision might actually, like good leaders often have to make decisions that go contrary to what their advisors tell them. And then history kind of records, like, man, that person was really wise in how they handled it. Like, at the time, he had all sorts of resistance. But this king, it's just sort of, he comes in, hey, man, what should be done? He doesn't say, hey, this is, this is the situation. This is what I think should be done. Am I missing something? Do you have it? Can, you, can you see it from another angle? And so I think from the king, like one thing I see in this is the king's just a bad leader. Like, like we, we want to take in wisdom from people. And, and, on, and on the same side, which we'll get to, is Haman had some horrible advisors. And so you, you, you have an array of, like, counselors, and then you need to make your decision based on, like, after praying, after seeking guide, like, trying to, to, to go forward. And in this case, I think it worked out well for the king. But if you, like, historically, this guy made all sorts of blunders based on following people's advice. Like how the story opened, like he wanted his wife to come out naked and she wouldn't have that. And so then he talked to them, well, what do you think we should do? Well, you can go back and read the story. He, oh. And so so here we are. He says, well, just go do it. Whatever you said, that's that's great. And so in verse 11, so Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Like this whole scene, this is, I really, like, why do they only give us one verse? Can you, I'm imagining Haman sort of like grabbing the robe, grabbing the horse. Hey, dude, you know me? I'm Haman. I'm that guy that had you and all your people sentenced to execution. I needed you to put on this robe and get on the horse. And I got to praise you around town all day long, repeating that this is the guy that this is what happens when the king honors you sort of thing. 
I don't think he was happy. This wasn't like, like, this is not good. And then I, I, I think Mordecai is like, clearly everybody knew about this gallow that was being built. I don't know if Mordecai knew that that was intended for him. But he knew who built it for sure. Like, hey, what's going on? Yeah, Haman's building a big old, huge gallow. And so it was like Mordecai getting on this, like on the horse, having him shout, going, what is happening here? Is this a big, like, big jokes on me as he takes me to the gallows and, like, executes me? Like, this is what happens if you don't honor me? I just wish there was more. We don't know. We just said that that he did as the king said, and they walk through town, and, you know, they get back in verse 12, and it just says, Mordecai returned to the king's day. He's, all right, still working hours. I'm just going to get back to work. Well, I don't know what this is all about. But now Haman has a temp- temper tantrum. This is me losing the board game when it gets so bad. I just want to flip it over. I've been banned from playing a lot of board games in our house. <laughs> I am a terrible loser. It doesn't work well as a pastor, so I like really try to like stay out of stuff. But look at him. He ran home crying is what I see. That's my he hurried home mourning with his head covered. That means he, he's crying. He's running home. He covers his face because he doesn't want anybody to see him crying. So he calls his wife, except this time it says that his not his friends, his wise counselors. Well, let me just read here. Then his wise men and Zeresh's wife said to him, If Mordecai, before you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Do you remember what I told you to file away in the back of your brains earlier? They knew he was Jewish. What happened? Their advice here is suddenly super sound. Totally different. It was their idea to build the gallow, to have the guy like strung up. And it reminds, I I, want to say this next story with a big disclaimer. Don't try this at home. I shake my head at who I was back then. And the people involved in the story, I'm still very, very good friends with. I was the best man in Really, both of their weddings, that although I had to get bumped out for the one because I couldn't get off an op I was on. So, and, and so I was in high school, and I'd come across somehow, I don't know how I came across it, but at our house, there's like a big box of like chocolate X-Lax. It was like di- distributed, not distributed for resale. It was like, I think my mom was selling like some job where it was like you go to a doctor's office and hand out this stuff. And so in my 17-year-old brain, I like, chocolate X, I wasn't quite sure what the stuff did entirely. I mean, I had a rough idea. I'd certainly heard of chocolate X-Lax brownies. And so the wheels start churning in my head. And I'm like, this will be great. And so I, I, I'm reading the directions, you know, but I, it doesn't give you like a recipe for brownies if you want to do it in the proper dosage. So I just, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. So I just took a bunch of the chocolate. I ran down to the store and I got some like microwavable chocolate brownie mix. I made up the mix. I, I made my little brownie pan. I cut it up. I put it in a Ziploc bag. I made myself a lunch, which I never made a lunch. That should have been a clue for a lot of people. So I go with this bag lunch. I actually put food in it. And then there was the brownies. 
So I seek my wise counsel of my buddies. I say this, I, I don't quite know who my target is, but I want to like give this to somebody. I think it'll be hilarious. Like that is a great idea. <laughs> this, this, this is awesome. What you, what's your plan? I'm like, I'm not there yet, but we have a pep assembly or a pep rally or something. And, and so I go there with my lunch and I just, I remember it was dark in the room and a few people over Hey, I have brownies. I'm way too stuffed for my lunch. Anybody want them? And so my friend was there. Babe. I was the best man at his wedding. He's like, I am starving. I chuck them. He grabs them. He takes one bite. He's like, these things are horrible. And I'm like, yeah, I know. There's some like microwavable brownies or something. <laughs> like try not to smile or giggle. And he's like, well, I'm just starving. So I'm going to just eat them all. So he eats them. He eats them all. And, and he was a dear, he is a dear friend. We're still really close today. <laughs> he won't take food from me anymore. But he was like a top level, like diver, like, like diving, like Greg Luganis type, like Greg Luganis, like kind of was in our school system, like a couple years before. And so he was like threatening all of his rounds. And that night my phone rang. Like, hey, how's it going? It was before caller ID or anything like that. And it was my friend. He's like, dude, I'm going to kill you. I'm like, what, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> we, of course, deny it, right? Like, I, what are you talking about? He's like, do you know how hard it is to do like a, 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 a triple and a half thing when you suddenly have, and I was just like, I'm, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and then I, like, then the next day at school, like when I had to see everybody, I might have got punched a couple times. But then all my advisors that I go to, they're like scolding me. And like, guys, you are the ones who egged me on, who told me, run with it, go with it. This is going to be great. And now you're telling me I'm a jerk and you, you never think that I, how could I do this to him? So when I read this story, when I see this, if he's of Jewish or where were they last night? They knew he was a Jew. Now they're they're just spitting out beautiful biblical prophecy, like, like, like they're reading Genesis 12. That if this guy is Jewish, there's no way you'll overcome him. Why didn't you tell me this before you said to build the gallows to have him hung on? <laughs> like, great. And before he even has time to like process anything, verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs, had arrived hastily and brought Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. Esther, who had been so gracious, so composed, so patient to wait for God's timing, everything's going to unfold. And in this story, I see the, the, the two main characters. Like I see Haman and his pride. And his, you know, Ben mentioned during the announcement, like as we were about to take our offering, that bumper sticker, he, he who dies with the most toys wins. And we're taught that. Sometimes it's like the American dream, like, hey, just gather, 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 get as much as you can, consume as much as you can. And people steamroll each other in this quest for more. And this great pride. And so in James 4, 6, this verse keeps coming at me, and it says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And if you read that verse, you'll see that it's in capitalized letters 
in the New Testament. Often when you see, most Bibles, when you see capitalized letters in the New Testament, it means that the author is referencing an Old Testament passage. But on that one, you're going to get like three or four different references. If you have a reference Bible that will reference. Many of the New Testament writers, they wouldn't necessarily quote word for word, but they would take like a composite of verses. And if you go to that verse, there's like three or four verses that if you kind of plug them all together, it creates what he said. But what it has me thinking about is all through the Bible, when pride is mentioned, it's given with great, great warning. That if you're prideful, if you think you're so great and you're like the linchpin in everything, only demise will come. This is, this is just truth. And for those of us who follow Christ, we're not exempt from pride. Like, it's a struggle. And so when I look at Haman, I see this, like, this, like, humble yourselves. We need to be humble. That there be less of us and more of him in our lives. That we would consider others more important than ourselves. Like the list of Bible verses is endless. But the Bible makes it clear, like, I am insignificant. Christ is everything. Christ loved me, and so therefore I should love others. And then I see Mordecai in this story. And we don't have a lot about him, but his, his patience, his trust, even when he challenged Esther to go see the king, and she said, Esther, or she's, Esther says, Mordecai, it's not that simple. I haven't even seen the king in 30 days. And if I go before him without being requested, he's gonna, he, the, the standing order is that I'm executed. And then Mordecai says, don't think that you're exempt. This is just my paraphrase. If you don't do this, he didn't say God, because God's not mentioned, but somebody else will rise up to spare his people, to spare the Jewish people. And so what I see this is whatever we're going through, whatever struggles, whatever life is thrown at you, because as long as we're in this world, there's going to be resistance because this world is fallen. In Romans 15, 13, it's a little bit after Romans 15, 14, it's nine verses later that we read earlier, like this, this bigger picture that, that God's word was given for hope. It says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound by the pow- in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when I look at Mordecai and I look at his situation, it seems hopeless. And when, when you find yourself in a situation where hope has sort of vanished, there's nothing more terrifying than to be hopeless. And what I know of the scriptures is the scriptures points us to the Messiah who's Christ, Jesus, and that in him we have hope. And I think that he's the key of all of Esther, that this is God's story of how he, his word has remained true, and he said a lot of stuff about Jesus. And so I encourage you to trust in him for those of us who have trusted in Christ, that we would continue to lean on him and that we would mature in a way that even if our world is falling apart and we can't see the bigger picture of what God's doing, and, and most times you can't see the picture of what God's doing when you're in the midst of it. 
that we would be able to have that hope and to be able to rest and trust in him, even though we don't have a clue what's going on and things are rough. And so, Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful story of Esther and how you preserved the Jewish people. Father, I confess, Lord, that it's easy um, for my flesh to run wild, for me to think more of myself than others. And Father, I pray that you would help me to really humble myself. Think of Philippians chapter 2, where we're told to look to Christ's example, that he, being God, humbled himself and became man and went to the cross. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us each heart transplants, that we would have your hearts. Father, I pray that as we go through life and we struggle with fears and worries and concerns about very real things, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to lean upon you, to trust you in the midst of any situation and situations that seem bleak. We thank you, Lord, that we have hope in you. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.